You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Good to see everyone. Um, Fontaine came around and put these cards on everybody's seats. We don't want to want to make sure you know about it. Um, uh, do hope you can come. Uh, the Reformation celebration is what we're calling it. Didn't, never came up with a really clever, fun title, um, and so we just kind of went with let's say what it is that 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 strategy. Um, uh, as probably most in this room would know, um, on October 31st, which is sometimes known as Halloween, to some others of us it's known as Reformation Day. Um, that's the day that probably, it's probably 60-40 that it actually happened, um, that Martin Luther is a young, August, really not, not so young, 32, 33 years old. He was, a, he was rather an old man before all this started by, by 16th century standards, but 32, 33 years old because he wanted to post a notice that says, hey, we need to talk about this. So it's the, the I guess, the modern day equivalent of posting something on his Facebook page or something else like that. Um, he nailed 95 theses to the, to the door of the, what's called the Castle Church uh, of Wittenberg. Um, that happened on October 31st, but about 50 years before that, it was just hitting the, the stride. The printing press, of course, uh, had started. And, and there was lots of other things going on, and I didn't mean to talk about all this, but it's really interesting to me. A guy named Johann, Johann Tetzel um, was coming around, and he had just started to sell indulgences. That was relatively new. A lot of us know about that um, because Pope Leo X uh, was trying to raise money for um, St. Peter's Basilica, um, a major capital campaign is what we would call it now, and trying to figure out ways to, to raise the money so you could offer a plenary indulgence. You could indulge the Lord's grace and favor by um, purchasing a piece of paper. They still exist. You can still go somewhere and see actual you know, paper indulgences over in, in museums over there um, to buy uh, the Lord's grace and favor to um, move yourself not from, or loved ones, not from hell, that was separate, but from purgatory, which was actually a medieval concession to grace. Um, it was, uh, you're not consigned to damnation forever. You're just consigned to this place where your sins, which you weren't able to take care of in this life, could be purged from you in this sort of limbo state in another one. Uh, and so that was purgatory, but you could um, uh, indulge the Lord's favor um, by hundreds of thousands of years sometimes. I mean, this really strange tradition popped up very quickly, relatively speaking. And Johann Tetzel came out, and most people what became the reformers, but also, you know, true, earnest, faithful people in the church, what we now call Roman Catholics, but they wouldn't have been called that then. A lot of people said, like, that's a little bit wacky, this thing that Tetzel's doing. And the little ditty was actually a true ditty. You know, every time a coin in the coffer rings, a soul in purgatory springs, and Tetzel would even say, look, if you come to me, he was just a great salesman, a little bit of a... Well, this is, this is what it was, a little bit off color here, but you could rape the Virgin Mary and I would still be able to get you out of purgatory. You know, he would go out and he would hold this up. Well, that was attractive to people. <laughs> Luther, coming straight out of that, says, week nine, we can't do this. And so he posted them on the door first. Now's a good bridge to this class. First of the 95 uh, theses says, it's really the only one that's, nah, that's not true. There's about 10 of them that still 
matter. You read the 95 Theses today, and they're not, they're not that great. I mean, there's nothing there that's going to change your life, um, except for the first one. When our Lord Jesus Christ said, repent, he meant a lifetime. That's something that's worth doing. It's not a one-time thing. You don't buy repentance. You don't, um, you don't do something. You don't sort of muster up enough sorrow or whatever else in order to, uh, to get out of purgatory or stay out of hell or to buy, um, to be in favor for something else. There's a whole other part that we can go into another time. But that's what kind of started a lot of it, and that's where it, certainly we take a lot of our, of our. Uh, moorings from that happened that happened um, uh, on October 31st 1517 500 years ago in two weeks um, uh, and so we're going to have a party <laughs> and it's not just a party as Andrew said some people think it's just as if this isn't enough as it's not just good friends food uh, beer wine sodas water other things too but we are going to have a little program um, there'll be uh, to borrow a Supreme Court phrase There'll be a redeeming religious value to it as well. Um, but I hope you can come and invite your friends. It's totally open, but we are um, we're being catered, um, so we need a, a firm headcount so you can do that by Wednesday. So that was a long, I didn't mean to say all that, but it's really interesting, I think. Um, let's pray. Gracious Father, come now and uh, be present to us as we finish this short series um, on, uh, on Christ on coming to us, your son coming to us. Um, uh, speak, Lord, in a way that's helpful. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and pass these around now just so I can be done with it. If y'all wouldn't mind helping and just kind of take one and pass it back. I'm sure you would. Um, last time, this is the sixth of a six-week series. I know it's made this sound strange. I've really enjoyed this series. And I'm not saying that about anything with me. Um, uh, the time that I've been able to... Uh, read Mark again. Um, it's been praying through this, thinking about things. It's uh, it's really helped. There were things that always happens, almost always, I would say. Things that I didn't expect would happen on the front end, say in July, when I'm saying, I wonder what I'm going to teach you on this fall. Um, there are always things that come up that I don't expect. Um, the idea of repentance, and then when I'm passing around here, just the frequency of the word group, you might call it that comes up in Mark of something like wonder, amazement, astonishment, marveled. Um, today it's going to be alarmed. There's these these words that, and this isn't even exhaustive, it's almost exhaustive, but even since I did this, like on Tuesday I think it was, um, I saw a few other instances where uh, in 16 short chapters, uh, everybody's walking around just gobsmacked and dumbstruck and and forcibly displaced, and so here it is, you know, that thing, um, those, those, those balls that used to be the desk toys that went, that's the best visual image that I know of. Every time I read Mark now, and I, I, I hear that and they were astonished, or they were amazed, or they were afraid to ask him anything, I think, you know, bang, where they have been totally um, removed from where they were and displaced forcibly into a whole new apprehension of reality. Now that sounds really ontological and fancy and philosophical and stuff, but what does that mean? Gobsmacked, just dumbstruck, dumbfounded, where suddenly there's this aha moment where the whole axiom we've been following for these six weeks is this truth of human nature, a non-Christian truth, but the Bible certainly screams this word, but, but others do too. 
uh, that we don't see things the way they are. We see things the way that we are. And it's, it's real hot right now. And, you know, if you're reading David Brooks or Dan Airely, behavioral economics, um, uh, all sorts of things in, in neuroscience and all other sorts are backing this up, which I think is really interesting to read. But it's also very reflective, very um, indicative of what we would call a good, solid, robust doctrine of sin that we can't see things the way they are, that our sin-latedness, the, 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 the glasses that we wear, the masks that we have on, the filters through which we see and hear or experience the world, all sorts of ways that we describe that, original to us, meaning from the time of birth, even before that, we don't see things the way they are. Um, we are not good at judging truth. Some attorneys in the room. I've been I've been told this. Love some nods from you who are attorneys. Uh, that some of the weakest evidence in a court proceeding. There's a lot of attorneys in the room. Why am I surprised? Um, uh, is is uh, is direct eyewitness testimony because it's 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 malleable. You don't see things the way they are. That we remember things that we think happened, and so it's true that I, I really 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 believe that he did it. I really, really, really believe the car was red. I really, really, really believe. And you get into sincerity. We'll see some more, some more of that in a minute. We don't see things the way they are. So it takes something like this, where for a moment we see, as Paul would say, um, as in a mirror dimly. And really what it is, they're thinking about a, 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 like a copper plate that you polish up really, really well. And you look in there. I mean, that's not a mirror. That's not what we call a mirror. But you have a vague sense that there's a head that's in that shined up copper plate. That's what Paul's talking about. That's how dim a reflection of the true truth that we apprehend. And even that is enough to bring us to our knees and echo Thomas and say, my Lord and my God. It's those being thunderstruck um, with grace, being thunderstruck by God, being thunderstruck um, in a relationship where Christ comes to us, where it's backwards from the way that we normally think of what we might call repentance or just the way the world goes round, that I've done something wrong, I need to do something to make it right, and then when the other person, whether that's you or God, sees that I'm sincere in my um, sorrow or regret or remorse. And that could be, I'm really, really sorry that I got caught, <laughs> or I'm really, really, really sorry that it happened. I did it, and, and wretch that I am, who will deliver me from this place? There's, there's different ways that even that comes out. And that's not the way that God loves us. He loves us in an entirely different axis, an entirely different paradigm, an entirely different grid, where he comes first. Uh, and he moves us, that's this force, you have to have a first love, you have to have some primal mover, as it's sometimes been called. The first move is always God's, where it shifts us, and where for a moment we might see the way things are. And then wonder, fear, trembling, love, awe, astonishment, marvel, uh, uh, amazement, jaw-dropping, gobsmacked. What? 
you know, what just happened? And now maybe, just maybe, just maybe, this is why Thomas Cramner in his wisdom, going back to the 16th century, sees fit after we, after, after we pray the prayer of confession in morning prayer. Lord, I did it wrong. Your law is right. I don't meet up. Um, I am truly and earnestly sorrow for my sins. Um, then the minister stands and so that gives the absolution. Now that we've said that um, we're wrong, Lord, grant us true repentance. <laughs> Wait, I thought I was just repentant. I was really, really sorry. But then we have our eyes open to recognize that even as Rod Rosenblatt, who's coming here in a couple of months, even our repentance is, is half-baked. <laughs> um, he uses another word. Um, even our repentance is half-baked. And, and we, we don't even do that right. And God's like, I know. And it's okay. And it's okay. I got this. I've known that the whole time. I got you. You're mine. And I'm God. And nothing's going to change that. Let me be me, says God. Let God be God, we say. Or better, with Thomas. It's one of the great phrases. The climax of John's Gospel. My Lord and my God. And so that's where we've been going. Couching all this in the uh, what's not to be missed, that it's about a relationship. And that's why human relationships that deal with love or death or life are what I've been, admittedly, laying on real thick. Um, because those are the thing which are like looking into a copper, a shined up copper plate. And we can tell like, well, I think I'm looking at myself in a mirror. I think I see you in this. I can't see any details, but I'm pretty sure that's what it's like. Or one of the passages Mark, I see people but they look like trees walking. You know, it's a very veiled sense of, I, I can tell there's something there. It's our human relationships that can tell us there's something there, that there's something to God in his very godness, very God of very God, begotten, not made. Christ comes to us, reflective of the way that he exists in himself. The Father relating to the Son, the Son relating to the Spirit, the Spirit relating to the Father and the Son, and all that intertwined relationship. It's about relationships, Gil. You idiot. It's about relationships. Of course it is. Which is why we looked the first week at a 20-something couple who are about to get married. And at first, they're just all over the place, chit-chatting, da-da-da-da-da. I mean, it's just a delightful couple. I mean, it's not a care in the world except the love that they have in front of them. And then they get made up to look like what they're going to look like when they're 50 and 70 and 90. And they get undone. You know, another one, the first one of that. Why? Because of the weight of the realization of the relationship. And as, as he said it, I think, I'm just, somebody says, why are you crying? He's like, I'm just struck looking at you with the realization of the life that we will have lived by the time we look at each other like that the conversations that we'll have, um, the lives and the deaths that we'll experience together. And it's, it's enough to be as an Amir Dimly. Or the second week, looking at Ruby Turpin, a great character in Flannery O'Connor, you know, a, a, a completely self-absorbed 50-something woman in 1950s, um, and how she gets gobsmacked, um, looking at the, the lunatic fringe, leaping like frogs, you know, being the first in line in this revelation, the title of the story of, uh, of who's going to heaven. Or the third week, um, 
the, uh, the story of a 27-year-old husband just trying to find a way to love his wife, who, uh, although they're only three years into the marriage, um, completely out of the blue, is suffering from acute psychosis. And he's trying, he's trying to say, how do, I, how do I love you? How am I going to endure these times where you're like, all I want to do is die? Um, and so we looked at that as a way of trying to see things the way they actually are. Or the short film about a man who is so blinded by the humdrum of the years, just the day in, the day out slog, where he gets totally lost in not seeing things the way that they are. And it takes his wife's, again, uh, uh, slip of paper that says, you have terminal leukemia and you're going to die. And suddenly that's the thing that turns him at last, even through his wife's death, a loving man. Um, or the last one, we took that last week, uh, a deathbed scene. A woman who was dying, uh, who thought her wit, title of the play um, in the movie, who thought her wit was the thing that could define her. And, uh, and as Paul again says in 1 Corinthians 13, everything, everything is going to pass away except faith, hope, and love, which is buried in a relationship. Uh, and the one, one of the few people, I wouldn't say it's the only one, I think, I've never actually seen the movie, one of the few people who cared about her, a mentor for who she was and not just what she brought as potential to the table, uh, came and read The Runaway Bunny to her. Um, oh, look, a little allegory of the soul. Wherever the soul goes, God is already there. Um, and so that's what we've been looking at, spreading thickly this idea of, um, of Christ coming to us. So now a quick pause. Um, Many of y'all have been in here for, if not all, six weeks. Um, a lot of them. Some are coming here for the first time. Any, any thoughts? Any connections? Don't usually do this, but it's kind of a series, and it's, it's more of a series building on itself than some of the others that I've done. Any connection points or anything that stands out to you? Some of the illustrations that have been that I've used, or any, anything. Give y'all a floor for a minute before I take it back. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, I was just waiting for somebody to be not so polite, Liz. So, so, yeah. Where do you go in Scripture when you're not feeling that? Yeah, the Psalms. That's where I go. You probably knew that. Um, and that's going to be part of where we're going this morning with uh, with Bono. Full disclosure, you know, he's coming. You know, people that know me know what that means. Um, uh, the Psalms. It's the honest expression of the full range of the human experience. Um, and the hun- 150 Psalms are what we have. The highest heights and the lowest depths. Hatred, envy, anger, displacement, loneliness, joy, sorrow, grief. Uh, what's worse than sorrow and grief? The Psalms have it. Um, when you're just absolutely in despair, uh, uh, or when you're in absolute euphoric joy, where words can't express it, um, it's in the Psalms. So I, I go there. Um, and then I also believe in the promises of God that it's that that I don't. The love of God is so complete and so true that I don't have to feel it. And that's an important word, I think, for us to say. I don't have to feel God's love in order for me to believe the promise that he does love me. As Andrew even mentioned, that there's nothing that we can do that makes God not love us. 
any less, but also <laughs> nothing we can do to make him love us anymore. His love exists completely outside of me. And that's a really reassuring word. That's a really reassuring word. Um, that's where I go. Yeah, Jim? Listen, listen to you talk, I'm reminded of the book of Isaiah and Clay Pascal. You draw in the presence of God, the gobsmacked thing you're talking about, the difference in him and you, him and me, your only reaction is to follow your faith. Amen. Seeking gratitude. For yep, yep. Um, as Isaiah first, you know, away from me, I'm a man of unclean lips. And he comes to me yet still. And then it's like, well, then my life is gratitude. What what will you have me do? Here I am, Lord. That's exactly what I did. Isaiah did. You're exactly right. Um, so that's a bridge. I'm going to look at a clip from Bono here. Um, but a subtext to this path, which also sets this up. Um, also... You know, strong subtext of what I wanted to do is 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 bring us in front of of Jesus, bring us in front of the gospel text, um, bring us in front of the text of Mark, uh, to make us wonder who is this man. <laughs> you know, it's one of the questions in Mark. He says, "Who do people say that I am?" And then he asks Peter directly, "Who do you say that I am?" And I do think we can read that word as a word of direct address to each one of us. Who do you? say that Jesus is. Um, there's a lot that floats out there. Um, Jesus is a good teacher. He's a good philosopher. This is going to be strictly here. And, and, and Bono's going to agree with me. Um, uh, that, that I hear that. But again, that goes back to the sincerity part that I don't think it's right. I, I just really believe that Jesus, Muhammad, and Moses all want us to just get along because they're all really just trying to say the same thing. I just really believe that. I hear that all the time, and I don't think it's true. And that's all I want to say is some ways a six-week way to let us challenge assumptions and things like that. Now, I, I want us to coexist. I want us to get along in this world. I do not want you know, global thermonuclear war, war games. Um, uh, that's bad. Um, and, but we don't need to put Jesus on there and try to say that he is the same as this or that or he wants this or he wants that. Um, he can speak for himself rather well. And that's been a strong subtext here. So set up, I'm going to tell you, tell you what you're about to see, then we're going to see it, and then we can talk about it. And then we're going to, um, we're going to read Mark first, and then we're going to watch Bono. But here's what's coming with Bono, because then we're going to talk about, um, then we're going to read. Uh, he's with an interviewer. I don't know who it is, BBC or somebody, an older English guy. Um, my guess is, because this is where we pick it up, I don't know the context of the interview, that the interviewer wanted to just get Bono to talk about his religious... He's a very religious man who then gets really involved in stuff in Africa. And so he wants to say, you, you're obviously a religious man who's doing good things. Let's talk about that, I think is what the interviewer wanted, wanted where, where he wanted to take Bono. But Bono didn't go there because he starts talking about God, which sounds great, but you can always wonder about if it's just God language and nothing else without any definition. That can be a flag. Bono didn't go there. I don't think he's trying to do this. The guy wants to talk about God kind of abstractly, very non-offensively. A lot of people can talk about God as in religion or spirituality and these sorts of things. 
But Bono keeps talking about Jesus. <laughs> he keeps bringing up Christ. And the guy even says, you're getting a little bit exasperate, exasperated. The interviewer is like, yes, but I was talking about God. And Bono's like, oh, right, sorry. But you see, I can't talk about God without talking about Jesus Christ. And he's right there in John. John 1.18, where he says, no one has ever seen God. Um, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son, he has made God known. He's the only way we can talk about God with any kind of certainty, with any kind of definition. Otherwise, to talk about God is pure abstraction. And we'd be wise not to even peer into that soup and say, like, hmm, I wonder what's in there. It's not for us to know. God and his godness is so other, it's not there. But as God discloses himself, makes himself known in Christ, in the word or in the words of scripture, that's how he limits himself so we can approach him. Again, that mirror dimly part. Uh, that's where Bono wants to go. The interviewer gets more and more bemused. He's like, and he keeps trying to redo it. And I think he pulls, I'm guessing he goes back to his journalism 101 and says, I'm supposed to go where my interviewee goes. So he starts following it. Okay. So you think this, then it follows that, and he starts cross-examining Bono. So, so when you pray, who do you pray to? Christ. And you believe that that actually works. Yes. What do you pray for? And he just goes through this whole thing. We're going to watch all that. And then it's going to bleed over. Whoever made the video then goes to a clip. We're not going to watch the whole thing. But this is the blank part, um, where it's two parts of the Psalms, Psalm 40 and Psalm 116. Uh, where one of their songs, U2 songs, was just Psalm 40. They just put it to music, the last song on the war album when they were in their 20s. They wrote it, and they kept it around. And he takes the cry, How Long, O Lord, which is in Psalm 40, but it's in probably 15 or 20 other psalms as well. Just one of the great phrases from our Psalter. How long, O Lord? When, again, you don't feel the love. How long are you going to tarry? How long will you wait until you move. You've promised that you will not leave me or forsake me. Well, how long until I feel that? How long until I know that? How long until there's some relief to this death, to this problem, to these people, to, to, to me, whatever it is? Um, and then he shifts. And then you hear the streets have no name start to sort of butt up and all that stuff. And it's a great moment. Um, it's a great, great, great moment. And then Bono here he stands. Sometimes he would kneel at the base of a heart. So it's about love. That's just definitely a symbolism. And he starts reciting Psalm 116. Just what y'all were, Julie, you and Jim were saying. How can I give back to God for the blessings that he's poured out on me? He repeats himself. How can I give back to God for the blessings that poured out on me? I'll lift high a toast to, our, to my father the cup of salvation, a toast to our God. And then almost almost inaudible, he says, hear my prayer. Um, now this cup of salvation, staying with Mark, uh, the night before Jesus died, he goes away to, cup, to Gethsemane. And what does he pray? Lord, Lord, if there's any other way, let this cup pass for me. This cup of what? This cup of death. He was praying, if there's another way, Lord, in Jesus' full-on humanity, Luke would add so much, so much angst that he sweated blood. If there's any other way, let this cup of death pass for me. And it didn't. And the death he died, the cup of death for Christ, became the cup of our salvation. And that's the image that I think Bono has 
in an act of worship. Everybody's holding up their hands. I mean, it's unmistakable. Um, wonder, love, awe, and praise. Because here's Mark 8. Um, I'm, not, I'm sorry, Mark 16, 1 through 8. Um, probably the last, I won't go into textual criticism here, but probably the end of Mark. This is the way it at least was originally done. It may have come back with an addendum later. When the Sabbath was passed, this is the... Um, this is Monday morning, so to speak. Jesus, I mean, sorry. Uh, uh, yeah, Mon- Sunday morning, Easter morning. Um, Jesus has just uh, died on Friday. He's been in the tomb all Sabbath, all Saturday. And so Sunday morning, the women come. Uh, and it's very interesting, by the way. Um, always trying to say how the Bible is radically offensive to all. The first witnesses in all four Gospels, the ones who are entrusted to go and tell, those are going to be the verbs. Go and tell are the women. And why does that matter? It doesn't take us too much to say in that time. That can be overplayed sometimes. But in that time, that was massively foolish to entrust the word to women. I don't mean anything by that except what I just said. Massively foolish to entrust that word to women. Why? Because a woman comes and tells the Sanhedrin or a court or anybody else, they don't give them any mind. There's no credibility in what you're saying. You don't count. And that's who Jesus, that, that's who the gospel's entrusted to. I mean, it's absolutely egalitarian. Um, so anyway, that part is over. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, that's probably the mother of um, James and John, the, the, the wife of Zebedee. Salome Zebedee would be her name. Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went out to the tomb and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us to the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man. This is an angel, but they don't know it yet. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. You could also say astonished. It would be the same word. That's translated both those ways, alarmed, astonished, amazed. And they were alarmed and amazed and astonished. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go, tell. Tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as I told you. And they went out and fled for the tr- from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. It's one of the most honest, realistic uh, scenes that you could think of. Of course this is how it would end. <laughs> they go, grief-stricken along the way. They're even like, what are we thinking? We're three women. How are we going to move the rock? It would take 40 men, 50 men, 60 men to move this rock. Uh, how? What are we doing? I don't know. Let's just keep going. And they get there. The rock's been moved. Dawn of light. They scratch their eyes. Wait, wait, what? And there's a man there, a young boy. The word would be a teenager. Um, some teenager sitting there, dressed in a white robe. Now, white's hard back then. You just don't have white because it's just it's dusty and you just don't see white. And so, white robe sitting there, echo to a lot of the Old Testament that they know. A lot of their writings, what white robes would mean. 
And they say, sir, what, what, where is he? It's like, he's not here. Just like he told you. He's risen. He's gone, just like he told you, two chapters ago. He's waiting for you in Galilee. Go tell the disciples. And then they give this great, great detail. Go tell the disciples. And Peter. Tell Peter. Because Peter is hurting more than anybody else. Because he denied Jesus. And Jesus saw him. He made eye contact with him. Right when Peter's words came out and said, I don't know him! And he knew it. And he knew, he knew, he knew. He knew what he was doing. And he's just absolutely undone. So go tell the disciples and Peter. Make sure you tell Peter that he's risen, just as he said. And what did they do? They walk away. Dumbstruck. Gobsmacked. Alarmed. That's an understatement. Amazed. Astonished. Absolutely, fundamentally displaced with this massive mixture of every emotion you could almost pour into the pot and put on simmer. I'm afraid. I'm scared. I dare I say I'm hopeful. Could this be? Uh, they didn't tell anybody. Not them. Now, obviously, they went on and they, they told somebody. Um, they told the disciples. But right when they were walking away, just this melange, this absolute stew of wonder, love, fear. Who is this man that even death does not hold him down? You know, what's he going to do? Is he going to come back? Is he going to kill us? Is he just going to sort of drop it on? Is this the day of the Lord? Is this the wrath which we're going to feel where he just wipes us all out, Sodom and Gomorrah? We thought they were bad. Ha! We killed God. And he comes back. And we know the story. He says, no, Peter, come and have breakfast. Have a carrot. Come and eat. Um, so all that's in there. Bono's working from the same base. This is how I'm going to end the class. Um, with this interview where the guy can't take Bono where he wants Bono to go. Bono takes him where he wants him to go with this um, interview about the absolute uh, inability that we have to pin Jesus down. We cannot put him into the box that we want him to stay in. And then it bleeds over from that, that human wave of experiences from how long to how can I be anything other than wholly devoted to you? Um, how can I give back to you anything? I raise the cup of salvation to you um, in gratitude for my life. Um, and then we'll stop it. Um, any thoughts? Then let's go. Um, as well as the sort of historical stuff I'm, I'm, I'm interested in. And of course, there was a historical Jesus. No, I'm talking about God. Oh, right. And, and well, I see, I, the, per, the person of Christ is my way to understand uh, God. Do you pray? Yes. To whom or what do you pray? To in the right way. To Christ. Yeah. And, and what do you pray for? Pray to get to know um, the will of God, because then the prayers have more chance of coming through. I mean, that's the thing about prayer, isn't it? I mean, we don't do it in a very lofty way in our family. It's just a bunch of us on the bed, usually. We have a very big bed in our house. And all our, we've prayed with all our kids. We, we you know, we just, we, we read the scriptures, we pray. It's not even regular. Sometimes if we go to church on a Sunday, we go when the church is ended and we'll just go in on our own as a family. 
for peace and quiet. for peace and quiet, and we'll pray, usually about people that we know who are struggling with something um illness or so then what or who was jesus as far as you're concerned i think it's the it's a defining question for a christian is who was christ and and i don't think you're let off easily by saying a great thinker or a great philosopher you know because actually he went around saying he was the messiah that's why he was crucified he's crucified because he said he was the Son of God. So he either, in my view, was the Son of God, or he was not. No, no, nuts. Nuts. <laughs> yeah. Rock and roll messianic complexes. This is like, I mean, Charlie Manson-type delirium. And I <laughs> find it hard to accept that all the millions and millions of lives, half the earth, for 2,000 years, have been touched, have felt their lives touched and inspired by some nutter. I just, I don't believe it. I, so I mean, therefore it follows that you believe he was divine. Yes. And therefore it follows that you believe that he rose physically from the dead. Yes. Yeah, I mean, uh, no problem with miracles. <laughs> Living around them. I am one. <laughs> so, so when you pray then, you pray to Jesus. Yes, the risen Jesus. Yes. And you believe that he made promises which will come true. Yes. That's it. <laughs> so, um, that's enough. Um, 
the displacing first love of God changes everything. That's kind of what this has been about. Um, and that's the gospel. Um, that God loves us before we're lovable. The love of God does not, as Luther said, does not create, I mean, does not find what is pleasing to it. Repentance is pleasing to God. A repentant heart is pleasing to God. What's a repentant heart? A heart that's soft. A heart that has eyes and ears that can see and hear things the way they actually are. A heart that has eyes and ears that can see and sense things the way they actually are. It says, I'm the problem. That's repentance. The love of God does not find that. The love of God creates that. The love of God creates that which is pleasing to itself. And it creates that repentant heart that says, I'm the problem, and you love me anyway. And now you're my answer. The cup of death has become my cup of salvation. Here I am, Lord. Send me. My life is yours. I don't own my life. My life is not my own. I have been bought with a price. Let's pray. Lord, speak. Let your word do its work. Um, Correct me where I'm wrong. Always, Lord. Um, But let your work be done in your way, not lacking for any needed thing. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, everyone. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.